0: Well, it looks like many of you are heeding my challenge of a couple of weeks ago to listen to 200 sermons this year. So you're well on your way and you're cheating by coming to church twice on Sunday. That's fabulous. As John MacArthur has often said, if you're spiritual, you come on Sunday morning. If you're really spiritual, you come on Sunday night. And I would agree with that. So we find ourselves in Isaiah 49 and... Later on, I'll answer the question, why are us dispensationalists so obsessed with Israel? We are, and I'll admit it, but I'll answer that question later. But there are varieties of views concerning the future of Israel, Um, even varieties among those who don't believe there is a future for Israel. Some feel that Israel's day is done permanently as a national entity, that they've been replaced or substituted by the church. Others feel that Israel is simply inculcated into the church without any distinctions of any kind. Others feel that the church is the new Israel. Some even feel that Christ is the new Israel, that he is now the epitome of all that Israel was to be. And some feel that when Israel officially rejected Christ, that that ended God's plan for Israel, ended his time with them, and he permanently moved on to the Gentiles, and that all of God's promises to Abraham are now fulfilled in the church of course, he's still saving Jews, but not with a future national presence at all. So there's a lot of varieties to the idea that God will not restore Israel as a recognizable nation. But as I mentioned last week, it's just really hard to get away from the the, the plethora of promises made to Israel prophetically in the Old Testament. And you have to see symbolism in these promises to continue the supportive view that Israel as a nation will not be returned to the good graces of God. And you back yourself into a hermeneutic Bible study method corner because all of those who believe that the promises of the Old Testament to a future nation of Israel are symbolic or are, are really fulfilled in the church, not in an actual nation, they also believe that the prophecies about jesus christ in the old testament were fulfilled literally exactly as they said so which one is it are we going to symbolize prophecy or are we going to just take it literally so we have to be consistent here and as we've embarked on a journey beginning in isaiah 49 to examine god's plan for israel and the nations we've seen that this section in isaiah introduces us very formally to the suffering servant of god the coming Messiah. And in fact, we just got through verse 13 of chapter 49 and we saw that the Messiah, Jesus Christ yet to be born, is actually the one speaking. He is narrating this whole section. And so we saw last time the mission and the triumph of Christ. His mission is to save Israel and to save the nations and his triumph is that he will succeed in his mission. Look with me at chapter 49, verses 7 and 8, just by way of reminder Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in the time of favor I have answered you, in the day of salvation I have help, helped, helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages. So he will succeed. Now, I want you to notice at the end of verse 7, the Lord is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Who has chosen you? The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, done just a a couple of centuries before Christ. The Septuagint uses the word eklego here, to elect, to choose, as part of the word group, which includes eklegomai. That's the word used in Ephesians 1, 4, even as he chose us. In this family of words, there's a noun that's used 18 times in the New Testament to speak of God's chosen, the eklektos, the elect. For anyone who says that Calvinists invented election, it's right there, we get the word from the text of Scripture itself. So these are the ones he has chosen. These are the eklektos. And so that first section there ends in triumph. In verse 13, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. And so if it ended right there, we would say, What a great ending. But now Israel argues with Messiah. Now remember, the original readers here either are or will be in captivity in Babylon, and clearly. It seems that God has forsaken him. And so Israel makes her case as uh, represented by the city name Zion. It represents Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. And, and Isaiah here pictures Zion protesting in mass as a group. It's like someone saying, The earth is cooling down. And we say, Bakersfield says we disagree with that statement. And so it's, it's this group reply in verse 14. But Zion said, Jerusalem said, Israel said, The Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. Forsaken is literally means to be left behind and forgotten, means that He that we're no longer in your mind. You don't even think of us anymore. We've been left out. And so to give proof that God has not forgotten Israel, God is going to give five verifications of his intention to honor his covenant promises. And these verifications all come through the servant. And we know the servant as the Lord Jesus Christ. He's still the main focus of this passage in relation to Israel. So the first verification of his intention to honor his covenant promises, the servant's expansion of Israel. The servant's expansion of Israel. And we'll spend a bit of time on this first verification now later on in this section the servant is doing the talking so it seems likely that the servant is speaking here as well and he gives a metaphor to demonstrate his commitment to and his his love for israel that goes even beyond the greatest human love of all time verse 15 he gives this picture can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb even these may forget yet i will not forget you What he's saying is that the Lord forgetting his love for Israel is as likely as a nursing mother leaving her baby on a park bench. But he says, well, that might happen on occasion, but I'll never forget you. The Lord's love is perfect. He'll never abandon. And then he gives another metaphor of his commitment. In verse 16, Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. This is a Hebrew interjection here. Behold, or see, look. It's the idea of, of creating a word picture. Look, he's spreading out his palms. I have engraved you on my hands. In some sense, Israel is engraved, tattooed, as it were, on the palms of the servant. Now, without the benefit of New Testament revelation, the, the reader would never get this specific. Uh, to the ancient reader, the servant has somehow simply engraved the memory of Israel a reminder onto his hands. But we do get a little hint Later on in Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 5, that he was pierced for our transgressions. And we get just open information in John chapter 20 when we meet the resurrected Jesus Christ who shows what it is that's engraved on his hands, perhaps on his wrists, the scars of crucifixion. And so Israel is engraved on the palms of his hands quite literally at his own death. But now there's a whole new theme that comes out. It's an interesting theme in Scripture. It's the theme of construction and expansion. uh, Construction in response to tremendous growth. Second half of verse 16, your walls are continually before me. Now we talked last week about having a good hermeneutic, a good Bible study method. And one of those, uh, one of our rules is that you don't make something figurative if there's not a reason to do so. There's no reason not to take these walls as literal walls. And the very next verse confirms the construction, the expansion theme. Verse 17, your builders make haste, your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Uh, The the servant here is saying, all of those who have persecuted you, all who have been the instruments of my discipline, they won't be a part of the picture anymore. We're going just positive now. Now that's a pretty considerable statement because historically, historically, Every century since King Solomon, the Jews have been persecuted by somebody. Every century. You can look it up in the history books. Instead of the persecutors, he says, your builders make haste. Now, there is an interpretive issue here. In, in context, the opposite of destroyers are builders... But this is simply the Hebrew word for sons or descendants or or children. In either case, the construction theme, the regathering theme, the expansion theme, they're both served whether you say the builders make haste or your children make haste. Either way, it fits the context. And then you get this beautiful picture in verse 18. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you. Who is this? This is the, this is saved Israel in the future. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Now this is wedding imagery. I've been at some of your weddings. I've performed some of your weddings and I have uh, been at other weddings and I've always noticed something. I've noticed that even conservative young Christian ladies who love the Lord and, and perhaps don't spend just a, a ton of time making themselves up in real fancy ways, on the day of their wedding, they look like they're going to the Oscars and they have every piece of jewelry that they can borrow from their mother and mother-in-law and, and from a pawn shop everywhere and they're just kind of blinged out, right? Right? And you have these little pearly things in the hair and and it's just really complicated. (laughs) Isaiah is saying here, the servant is saying through Isaiah, you will have so many new inhabitants to Israel that you'll put them on like a bride puts on her bling, so to speak. A greatly expanded population. And look, there will be so many of Israel returning That a renovation, a construction project is needed. Look at verse nineteen. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants, and those who swallowed you up will be far away. Why is the land waste and desolate? because historically or rather prophetically if we put this into its proper prophetic uh, timeline we're talking about right after the tribulation period when when the earth has been devastated and so what is this this is a picture of a of a guy in a hard hat and a clipboard going to a piece of land and saying you know i think we need to do something here i think we need to build something it's a mess now but let's do something with it in verse 19 the children of your bereavement Will yet say in your ears, The place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. So much need for renovation. Now, for the the exiles in Babylon, I think this would give them great comfort, great hope, great joy. But the reality is, when Cyrus freed Israel, most of them stayed. Most of them had been born there. They had been born in Babylon and it was taken over by the Medo Persian Empire. They were comfortable. They were a second generation group now. I remember, for example, that the book of Esther, the story of the Jews in danger in Persia, that takes place after the exile is over, after the, the return. But most of them are still there. And so there really is not such a massive return to Israel in the 6th century BC. One estimate puts the total number of Jews who returned at just 50,000. It's not really that many. So, if it 's not the actual return from exile, which Jews are these well it 's the ones that we saw last time coming from the north and the south and the east and the West. The regathering of god 's covenant people saved Israel, returning home to their Messiah who is on the earth, having returned. But now they need to remodel there 's not enough room, and in fact, Christ makes a a promise to the current generation of faithful Israel. He says in verse 21, then you will say in your heart, Who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. But who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? This is meant to be humorous. Now you can almost hear the Jews saying, One minute it was just me, and poof, now there's a million of us. Who would have thought? There's just this surprise, there's this, this wonder. Why will there be so many saved? Why is he saying we need an expansion project? We need to do a construction project. So many will be saved because God keeps his promises that he made 4,000 years ago to a man named Abraham. He promised Abraham in Genesis 22, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. That's why there's so many. In fact, Ezekiel 48 leaves instructions for how the land is to be divided when Christ returns, when Israel is regathered. Seven tribes will get portions in the northern regions, Dan, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Ephraim, Reuben, and Judah. And how will you know which tribe you're from? It's easy, just go ask the Lord, which tribe am I from? Five tribes will get the portions in the southern regions, Benjamin, Simeon, Issachar, Zebulun, and Gad. And you notice that there's a tribe missing, and that would be the tribe of Levi. Why? Because they were the priestly tribe who live off the other tribes, and God will return to that that the central land in the nation is allotted to what Ezekiel calls the prince, and he's called David. Some feel that this is actually Christ, the Davidic king. Um, I I don't tend to think that. I think that this is a person who is distinct from Christ, and we can show that in Ezekiel 44. But it is, if you are going to choose, the most likely person to rule the nation of Israel under the the whole kingship of Christ. Who would you choose? I would choose King David. And so it makes sense that he would be called David or perhaps even a descendant of David. But in this central land that's allotted to the prince, we also have Jerusalem itself. Jerusalem will be remodeled. It will have been basically demolished during the great tribulation and not much left of it. Big earthquakes, all kinds of things happening. And so when it's remodeled, it will be laid out as a square. The city proper will be 2.2 square miles, or 7,875 feet on each side. Now, let me give you a little perspective. You might be saying, that doesn't sound that big. Jerusalem right now is 49 square miles, not 2.2 square miles. And you say, well, that seems like a step back. Well, think of the perspective of the reader of Isaiah. The old city of Jerusalem was about a third of a square mile, 220 acres. That doesn't sound like a city. That's more like a village, but that was the city of Jerusalem. And the current city, the 49 square miles today is filled with unbelievers, filled with with the, the heretics, filled with people who will not come to Christ and they won't be there. So compared to the old city, the millennial city of Jerusalem will be seven times larger. So of course it will be big and it'll have 12 gates There'll be three on each side, each one named for a tribe of Israel. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, that's because the millennial Jerusalem is basically a little tiny scale model of the coming new Jerusalem as described in Revelation 21 and 22, which will be approximately 933 times bigger. That's just on two dimensions, by the way. That doesn't include the 1,400-mile height Of New Jerusalem. And if we count that, that makes New Jerusalem 1.3 million times bigger than Millennial Jerusalem. And yet, here, they're to celebrate that this new city will be there. But it won't just be the city, all the land around will be remodeled as well. Jerusalem will be surrounded by pasture land about the size of one and a half football fields in in width 437 feet to care for the flocks and the herds of the citizens of the city meaning that we're going to return to somewhat of an agrarian society on either side of the central city will be two portions of land 3.3 miles by 1.65 miles for farmland to supply food now if any of you have been to Jerusalem you know that something's wrong with this picture because Jerusalem is basically a city that sits on top of a whole bunch of rocks. That's it. A bunch of hills, a bunch of rocky crags, and it goes down sharply on all sides of the city. That's why it's it's an easy city to defend. So how can there be several miles of flat pasture land, flat farmland? Well, Zechariah 14.10, speaking of what happens at the end of the Great Tribulation, when Christ returns, there will be a massive earthquake The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. Zechariah also says that the highest place on earth will be Jerusalem. So what happens? All of a sudden there's this beautiful plain with Jerusalem still up high. Who's going to water all these crops? I mean, this is a dry land. Well, Zechariah 14.8 says, On that day, meaning the day Christ returns, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. But what's the most remarkable thing about this expanded city? It's how the book of Ezekiel ends. Ezekiel 48, 35 says the circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits. Those are the measurements we said before. But here's the most remarkable thing. The name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. The Lord is there. Which interestingly in Hebrew sounds very much like Jerusalem. So the first verification that God will honor his covenant with Israel is the servants' expansion of Israel, the construction project. There's a second verification we could identify, though, and that is the servants' allies of Israel. The servants' allies of Israel. At the end of the Great Tribulation, there will be a judgment on the Gentiles. This is sometimes called the sheep and goat judgment from Matthew 25. All the Gentiles who have loved Christ and consequently loved Israel will come into the kingdom. And Jesus says this in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 34, the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. All the Gentiles who have not loved Christ and consequently not loved Israel will be executed on the spot. Matthew twenty five forty one. then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then the kingdom commences. And of course, having returned with Christ will be the resurrected church being given their millennial assignments to reign with Christ. And we see all of this connected here in Isaiah 49, verses 22 through 26, and skip ahead to verse 24 for a moment. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you. I will save your children. And I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. They shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. All who stand in the way of Christ, all who stand in the way of Israel, all who have held her captive, all of them will be destroyed. In fact, verse 26, I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. It's, it's a picture of self-destruction. Now, Christ will be the uh, the, the uh, means of that destruction, but really it's them taking their lives in their own hands and saying, if you want to make the mistake of being on the wrong side, you are as good as destroying yourself. And verse 26 says, All flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior. May I ask you a question? Does all mankind today know who Jesus Christ is, know that he is the Lord, that he is the Savior, he is the, the lover of Israel? Does all mankind know course not but when jesus christ is standing on the mount of olives and the dust is settling from him having just melted all of his enemies with the word of his mouth at that moment all flesh will know all mankind will know how christ really feels about israel and when christ is returned and it's time to gather his people back who is it that god will use to help bring them home verse 22 thus says the Lord God behold I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples and they shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers with their faces to the ground they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet then you will know that I am the Lord those who wait for me shall not be put to shame Uh, this is an amazing picture to a Jew that the Gentiles of the world will bow down to them and love them and say, you are God's chosen. That's the dream of of the Jewish people is to be recognized for who they are. But you know this in verse 22, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples. Some sort of flag, some sort of signal. What is the signal that will be raised? Well, earlier in Isaiah, we find out who This signal is, because it is not a what, it is a who. Isaiah 11, beginning of verse 10, In that day the root of Jesse, this is Christ, who shall stand as a signal for the people's of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal, that is Christ. For the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The signal is Christ Himself. He's returned, and the signal says, Come home, come home, come home. What a glorious day that'll be. Israel will be exalted, and the believing Gentiles, including those of us who have returned with Christ, will bring Israel home. And the best of all the resources of the world will be used. It will be a massive migration. Kings and queens will bow to the ground in respect and honor and nations will provide all the all that's needed to get home, all the money, all the transportation. Isaiah 60 verse 16 says, you shall suck the milk of nations, you shall nurse at the breast of kings and you shall know that I, the Lord, am your savior and your redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. And this picture we see here. In verse 22, they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. The Gentiles, including us, will drop everything to say it's time to get Israel home. Do you understand what I'm saying? That you will have a part in fulfilling Bible prophecy? Because the kings and the queens are you. You are the ones who will be reigning with Christ, you are the ones who will be given that responsibility. It will be our joy, it will be our pleasure to serve and love the chosen people of God. Yet we ourselves, the kings and queens, reign with Christ. That really helps us understand the relationship of the Gentile to Israel in the Millennial Kingdom. It will be one of love, one of cherishing them, one of delighting in them. And during this thousand year reign of Christ, the thousand years is specified in Revelation 20, uh, six times, Zechariah fourteen sixteen says the nations will go up to Jerusalem year by year to worship the king the lord of hosts and by the way if you've been with us for John chapter 7 and we've been talking about the the beautiful wonderful feast of tabernacles or feast of booths which was meant to look ahead to the coming of Messiah guess what feast gets reinstituted in Jerusalem every year in the millennial kingdom and you get to have a part the feast of booths and all that we described you'll get to partake in it The first verification that God will honor his covenant is the servant's expansion of Israel. The second verification, the servant's allies of Israel. We could identify a third verification, the servant's correction of Israel. The servant's correction of Israel, God disciplines those whom he loves. As a nation, Israel has lacked the faith to believe in the complete restoration. Why? Because they've lacked the faith to believe in Messiah so far those still in Babylon had probably given up all hope I mean many of them had had children there those children grew up probably speaking other languages other than Hebrew and those in the world today for the most part don't believe Jesus is the Messiah and in many ways have given up hope and so in answer to the seeming total rejection by God chapter 50 verse 1 thus says the Lord where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? In other words, there isn't a certificate of divorce. Now, there's something very interesting here. Jeremiah 3, verse 8 says that God sent Israel away with a decree of divorce. And yet here God says, where's the divorce decree? So yes, God sent her away, but it was never meant to be permanent. It was never meant to be forever. This is in essence the remarriage of God to Israel. Speaking of the restoration of Israel, God told Hosea And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. In the second half of verse 50, or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. This is a picture of the the sad, but sometimes necessary practice of a man selling his children into slavery in order to pay off a, a massive debt. But God's asking, to whom do I owe anything? I don't owe anybody anything. The debt for which Israel was sold was their own sinfulness. But God is saying, the debt is paid. There's no creditors. I'm coming to get you. I'm bringing you home. The debt is completely paid. And so a corrective is issued. If God is faithful, and, and even though he's punishing, he's never wavered to restore his people. He's never wavered in this promise. In verse 2, he says, Why? When I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea, I make the rivers a desert, their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. Uh, the servant here gives a, a short resume of his power. He dries up the seas. Anybody think of a sea that has been dried up by God? The Red Sea. He can blot out the sunlight. Anybody think of a time that he blotted out the sunlight? In Egypt. And so the servant's correction of Israel is, why are you not believing? And, and the, the picture here, verse 2, when I what, why when I came was there no man. It's the picture of somebody knocking on the door. and Is anybody home? And they won't answer the door. When the servant was on earth 700 years later, Jesus, he was in his own hometown of Nazareth, but he didn't do much there. You know why? Well, he gave his assessment in Mark 6, verse 6. He marveled because of their unbelief. Or, why, when I came, was there no man? Why was there no one to answer? Why was there no one to respond in John's gospel, the Lord's gospel to the unbelieving Jew 98 times, he tells the unbelieving Jew, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the servant's correction of Israel. There's a fourth verification that God will honor his covenant with Israel. We might call this the servant's appearance in Israel. The servant's appearance in Israel, the servant promises to expand, he promises to give them allies, he promises to, he corrects them and calls them to repent of their unbelief. What more can he do? Well, how about come? How about come to Israel? This is a look ahead prophetically to the coming of the servant to Israel. And yet, interestingly, it's spoken of primarily in the past tense, as if he's remembering something that has already happened. And this will be very meaningful to Jews in our day, because now the coming of Christ is past tense. Verse 4 the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary morning by morning he awakens he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught what is this a picture of this is a picture of the servant receiving the word of God directly from God himself and each and every day teaching what he's been taught well we see this in the gospels Mark one twenty-two. they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes and why does he speak with such authority? John eight twenty eight. Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. And the words that the Father taught him were so perfect, so poignant, that it says here that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. And we think, of course, to Matthew 28, when Jesus gives that call to the weary to take my yoke upon you. It's a very, very simple call. And then verse five, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. Jesus himself declared in John 17, verse four, in praying to his father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And how would the servant who appears in Israel, how would he redeem her from her sin by offering himself as a sacrifice for sin, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. What did the servant do in verse 6? I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting Matthew twenty six sixty seven says, then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him. Mark fifteen nineteen, and they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. Matthew twenty seven twenty six, then he released for them Barabbas and, having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Mark fourteen sixty five, some began to spit on him, and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Luke twenty two sixty three, now the men who were holding. holding. Holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. The detail of the Lord's beard being plucked out is not in the New Testament narrative, by the way, but the whole counsel of God tells us here in Isaiah 50 that that was part of that torture. But I want you to know this one incredible phrase in verse 6 I hid not my face. I hid not my face. That is against instinct. Some of you guys, when you were in junior high, if you ever got in a fight, what did you do? Did you stick your face out there and say, hit me? No, you hid your face and you protected yourself. He was a willing sacrifice. He was a voluntary substitute. He was the only substitute that you have, the only substitute that's available. You can't come to God and say, I've done a lot of good things. How can you undo the bad you've done? You can't do it. It's impossible. It must be paid for. There must be a price paid. Christ was the only one who could pay that price, and he did. He came to earth fully human and fully God, and as a human being, in his ministry, he had to trust and he had to rely on his Father. And he says this, still looking back in in past tense, as it were, on his ministry, verse 7, But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced, therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He's relying on God as Father when He's on earth. And how often do we have this picture of Jesus praying before beginning His preaching ministry in Galilee? Mark 1.35, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, He departed and went out to a desolate place and there He prayed. The night before commissioning the 12 disciples, Luke 6.12 says, in those days He went out to the mountain to pray and all night He continued in prayer to God. After feeding the 5,000 men, Matthew 14 records after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. And what was he going to do right after he prayed? He was going to walk on water. Then the next day, according to John 6, he was going to preach to these 5,000 men and their 15,000 or so wives and children. He was going to preach the hard, true, direct gospel message that if you want to be saved, you must repent and you must, as it were, eat the body of Christ and drink his blood. And he knew what would happen because he is the omniscient, all-knowing God. What would happen is that almost all, all of those 20,000 would walk away. So he prayed. He relied on the Lord, his Father. The Lord Jesus received and fully trusted in the help of his Father that he would be successful. Satan would not have the victory. He would fulfill the prophecy of Genesis 3.15 to crush the head of Satan And how did Jesus respond to the strength given him by the Lord God that says here in verse 7, therefore I have set my face like flint. This speaks of the determination to finish something, to complete it. Luke 9, 51 says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And what did he do when the apostle Peter said, no, you're not going to go, you're not going to die He said, get behind me, Satan. He set his face. He was determined, he was decided, he was dogged in his resolve to fulfill the plan of God. And he would need a final burst of strength from his father, and we see that he received this in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus had cried out to the Father for strength to drink the cup of the suffering that was laid before him. He had come to the garden, according to Mark 14, 33, greatly distressed and troubled and he told Peter James and John that he said, "My soul is sorrowful to the point of death and he prayed in earnest. Luke 22:43 tells us that an angel appeared to him from heaven and strengthened him and what did he use this strength to do? The very next verse and being in agony he prayed more earnestly. he used the strength given him by the angel from God to pray more and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And suddenly at the end of this mighty time of prayer like has never been, has never happened in history, the Lord Jesus rose in strength and in confidence and in ability to meet his accusers. John 18 records, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. His disciples, this was to fulfill the word that had been spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. And with the strength given from on high, Jesus faced his coming trials, six of them, his death, and he drank the very last drop of the wrath of God for you and for me. And now Isaiah 50 verses eight and nine expresses this confidence. These verses say essentially from the servant, bring it on. I will endure it all by the strength given to me by my father. Verse eight He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? In other words, who's going to accuse me of not finishing my task? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. All those that say that the Messiah will not be successful will be gone. And he will succeed. He will endure it all. The irony here is that the servant appeared in Israel to die at the hands of Israel to be a sacrificial lamb for the sake of Israel so that he could reunite God with Israel. The justice of God fully satisfied in Christ, the grace of God fully given in Christ. Well, there's one more verification that God will honor his covenant with Israel. That is the servant's plea to Israel. The servant's plea to Israel God has never promised that having Jewish blood will save you. They had to be saved by faith. This is why the Apostle Paul said in Romans 9 verse 6 that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Every individual still must heed the gospel message. And now the servant issues a call. He says it's time to take sides because there is only two. First, he calls those who would believe in him to believe fully, to believe completely verse 10 who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God by the way what is the servant's definition of a true believer one who fears the Lord and obeys the servant there's no such thing as a Christian who just decides I don't really want Christ to be Lord of my life that person doesn't exist if Christ is not the Lord of your life Neither is he your Savior. What is the servant's definition? Like the hymn says, trust and obey, for there's no other way. So he addresses those who would believe in him to believe fully and completely. But second, he calls to those who would reject him, and he gives them fair warning that unlike the believer who walks by the light of the servant, as verse 10 says, they've chosen to walk by the light of their own making, their own torches. The self-righteousness with which they believe they'll be justified without Christ, without obedience. I can do it. I can be good in my own strength. I've been a pretty good person. Yes, I did a few bad things, but I've done some great things as well. And so I think God will be fine with that. Well, Jesus says otherwise. Verse 11, Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire. And by the torches that you have kindled, this you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. He says, you will lie down in torment. This is an imperfect verb, which means you will continue on and on and on to lie down, to die in torment. That your death will not be the end of your suffering. It will just be the beginning. And the servant says, and it will be by my hand you reject me, I will be the one who opens the door to hell and casts you in. The ominous picture of the great white throne of judgment with Christ on this very throne opening the books of the record of every single unbeliever and based on how they walked by their own light instead of trusting in the light of the world, they'll be thrown in the lake of fire and he says here, walk by the light of your fire, they will be living torches that they themselves lit. God will be faithful to Israel through the servant. Now, I asked the question earlier, why are we dispensationalists so obsessed with Israel? Who cares? I'm not Jewish, right? Because Israel gives us proof and a pattern for how God deals with his electos, his elect, his chosen ones. As God treats Israel, so he will treat the church and so he will treat his saints. So he will treat all those who would believe on his name very interesting that J.R.R. R. Tolkien who's most famous for his books The Hobbit and the sequel The Lord of the Rings. He has two historical tips of the hat to God's chosen people of Israel. The first one is 30 years after publishing The Hobbit, he explained that his design of the people of the dwarves was to be reminiscent of the Jews. In The Hobbit, there are 12 dwarves, like 12 tribes, who have been displaced from their homeland and they want to return home under the rule of a king who has been prophesied in their prophecies. In fact, Tolkien even uh, designed the dwarf language after Hebrew. He wanted it to sound like Hebrew. And he wrote The Hobbit, published just a few years before World War II, partly as a call to reverse the horrible stereotypes that were being promoted by the Nazis uh, to incite hatred. And so the dwarves were to be a positive representation of the Jews. In fact, he wrote this to his son in 1941. He said, quote, I have in this war a burning private grudge against that ruddy little ignoramus Adolf Hitler. That was his first tip of the hat to the Jews. He had a second tip of the hat. Right after the publication of The Hobbit, he was contacted by publishers who wanted to translate his book into German. And the Germans wanted to make sure that Tolkien was an Aryan, Hitler's idea of the perfect race of humanity, which was a sly way of asking him if he was Jewish. Here was his reply, if I am to understand that you are inquiring whether I am of Jewish origin, I can only reply that I regret that I appear to have no ancestors of that gifted people. Tolkien was a Roman Catholic, so I don't have high hopes for his salvation, but his attitude concerning Israel was spot on. According to Jesus in Matthew 25, a love for God's people Israel is godly and honorable because Christ himself, the servant, will be expanding Israel. He'll be providing allies to Israel. He'll lovingly correct Israel. He will once and again appear in Israel, and he pleads with Israel to come home. And so why are we dispensationalists obsessed with Israel? Because if God is that faithful to Israel, he will be just that faithful to you as well. And so you must serve the God of Israel. If you don't, then you will be the ones, in verse 11, this you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. But my hope for all of you is that you are the ones of verse 10, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of whom? of his servant and what does the voice of the servant say the voice of the servant says repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand the voice of the servant says that the Holy Spirit must blow and you must be born again the voice of the servant says that you must forsake your former ways you must deny yourself you must take up your cross you must follow me you must die to yourself the servant has not given us much to do you just simply must die you must die to yourself you must be all that he would have you to be and nothing that you would have yourself to be. You must obey what John the Baptist gave as a model when he said that the Lord must become greater and I must become less. That's what the voice of the servant says. And so it's my hope that the God of Israel is also your God through Christ the servant. Our Father, thank you for this uh, passage, which to our New Testament eyes and ears is so familiar the plucking out of the beard the offering of his face for punishment and we think on the cross we think of how the lord jesus offered himself so willingly a a voluntary sacrifice and we're moved and we're touched because it should have been us on the cross we are the ones who are the adulterers we are the ones who are the liars we are the ones who are the drunkards we are the ones who are the abusers we are the ones who are the deceivers we are the ones who are the thieves we are the ones who are the murderers and yet he was placed on a cross as one who is all of those things and yet was completely innocent he was placed up there to represent us who should have rightly been executed, rightly sent to the pit of hell for all eternity. And yet in his kindness, in his graciousness, the servant in Isaiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, received in himself the wrath of God, the full fury of your anger toward our sin. And Christ received it on himself instead of us. And on top of that, he had lived a perfect life which he offered to exchange for our terrible, sinful life so that when you look at us, you would see simply the perfections and the glories of Christ. And so we thank you for the servant. We thank you for his tender and kind and generous offer of salvation. And it is my prayer that every person here, every person hearing this message electronically, would come to faith in Jesus Christ, who alone can pay the price for our sin. And we pray these things all for his sake and for his glory. Amen.